Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I am not an expert on any of the topics I discuss on the show. I also have trouble watching my language at times, so listener discretion is advised. Hello everybody, thank you for joining me for episode 30 of Living Through Extinction. Before getting into any stories, I would like to make you all aware of something at smithsonianmag.com. They have posted six videos from the Natural History Museum that put the pandemic in context. Go to smithsonianmag.com to watch these educating and enlightening webinars. I was reading some Skeptical Inquirer articles and came across one titled, A Look at Toxic Individualism and Pandemic Denial. The article points out that capitalism in America is not what it once was. It has devolved into a culture of toxic individualism. While most of the free world combines capitalism with values and reasonable regulations to limit those in power from serving in their own self-interest, that is not the way in the U.S. And their bad habits are flowing over the border to our own ignorant masses here in Canada. Today in North America, there is less empathy and more indifference to human vulnerabilities, sufferings, misfortunes, and lack of opportunities than in free nations elsewhere. It hasn't always been this way. The LA Times highlighted what the American spirit used to look like in an article about old-school barn raisings. If a family was putting up a new barn, farmers and their families would come from all over the county to help. The farmers and sons would do the building, and the mothers and daughters would make huge feasts for the workers. Back then, Americans had the spirit of sharing, helping, volunteering, and just plain working together to get something done. Sounds nice, doesn't it? I wonder where that went. And, I mean, it's not just a U.S. issue. Many Canadians have lost the spirit as well. Hell, today, if you show the slightest bit of sympathy for the disenfranchised, someone's going to call you a libtard. What we need is for more people in power to care enough to take a skeptical look at what is different from us and those capitalist countries that are doing a better job at providing good qualities of life for everyone. What do they do that we do not? What do we do that they do not? What are the positive and negative results on both sides in each case? Why are they able to offer living wages so every person only has to hold one full-time job to survive? How are they able to offer equal paid leaves for mothers and fathers of new children? Why does nobody in those countries go bankrupt from health issues? How are they able to offer free education at all levels? If we are ever going to catch up to those free nations who have succeeded, we need to get away from the individual and work back towards being more of a collective. Everyone knows the term toxic masculinity, what it is, what it means. What we need to educate people on now is this toxic individualism. The U.S. is a rich developed country with 1.5 trillion in student debt, 45 million without health insurance, and 20 million underinsured. How is this possible? Because of toxic individualism complexes that do not seem to be an issue in other nations. Canada's situation is similar, except we do not tend to go broke just from treatment for illnesses. 
In the U.S. and Canada, we are more and more about the few these days, and less and less about the many, or the whole of our society. There was even an opera written about it. Sweet Land is a critically acclaimed opera that picked apart tropes of Western expansion and individualism. The opera company's name was The Industry, and they took care to not just make their points with the content of the show, but how it was made as well. It's very interesting, actually, and you should look it up. That's The Sweet Land by The Industry. Individualism is toxic and will destroy our societies. It has already started. In 2021, the best examples of this is occurring with mask wearing, right? It's an easy, simple thing to do to protect others. If you don't care if you get it, okay, but you will have it for a while before you know you have it, and you will pass it to others who may have immune issues, and they might die. Even healthy people are dying. It's not like this is just a threat or a scare tactic. It's happened again and again. I was just listening to a documentary called Young Widows of COVID or Young COVID Widows, something like that. Okay, please Google it. It was a podcast episode put out by BBC. These women in their 30s are telling their stories of thinking they had their whole lives ahead of them with their young, healthy spouses, and then they were taken by COVID. Many are left with toddlers who will now never know their dads. This disease that some refuse to admit is real and toxic individualists don't care if they spread is causing absolute devastation to millions of lives. The U.S. alone is losing more than the equivalent of having a 9-11 attack every single day. Yet these toxic individualist assholes insist that it's their right to not wear a mask. They don't care that they may be carrying. They don't care that they may get someone sick. They don't care that an immune-compromised child may have been on the bus and now they're going to die because of them. I have a friend who takes medications that leave them completely compromised. Their doctor has told them that they cannot get COVID. Yet they have found themselves in a store with some bitch there refusing to wear a mask and yelling about it. Toxic individualism. Stop just thinking about you and think just for a moment about who might be around you. What these individualists do care about is what they falsely believe is their right to not be bothered or inconvenienced. They are the reason for the numbers being so high. They are the reason for most of the deaths. If it were not for people like them, we would have kept this under control here in North America. I claim the humanist label, which is the direct opposite of individualism. A humanist will put people as a whole first and have no issues tolerating minor discomforts in order to protect those at risk. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't lower your oxygen intake. It doesn't increase your CO2 intake. It really does look like North American toxic individualism had a role to play on just how bad things ended up getting here. If we want it to be better next time, and there will be a next time, then we should focus on raising our children with humanist values and concepts. Let's do what we can to steer the next generation away from me, myself, and I, and back towards we, ourselves, and the community. And let's not forget to teach them skeptical inquiry and rational thinking as we raise them. Let's make the next generation skeptical, damn it. I love good news environmental stories, so tend to share them when I learn of them. What's being described as a climate crisis sanctuary has been discovered off the coast of Kenya and Tanzania. 
This area of the ocean is being kept cool thanks to glacial runoff from Kilimanjaro and the Usambara Mountains. And this has protected it from warming events, which are killing off corals everywhere. The cooling protections from the mountains has allowed for a biodiverse wildlife hotspot containing rare species. Species known to be dying out in other parts of the ocean are positively thriving there. The coastline now has the highest density of dolphins in East Africa, and fish once believed to be extinct are even swimming around. We have about 400 square miles of colorful, healthy coral here, while just outside of this protected area, they're bleached and dying. So, a place has been discovered that is protected from the warming of the ocean, and it turns out to be more full of life than anywhere else in the oceans. To me, this is pretty convincing evidence that the warming of the oceans is not only happening, but it's causing serious damage. Will this open anyone's eyes to the truth? The part of the story that makes me sad is that it probably won't. Those who need their eyes opened are unlikely to read these studies. So share these studies with those people in particular. Today I would like to talk about a matter that revolves around hunting. First, a little background on where I stand on hunting itself. Being Métis meant there were always hunters and trappers and fisher people in my family. They use respectful practices and teach their children to as well. My grandma did not hunt, but her brothers would give her meat when they made a catch, and they sometimes gave rabbit pelts to us kids. I have a pretty clear memory of the first time I opened the fridge at grandma's house to see a heart bigger than my head sitting in an uncovered roasting pan. Eating meat from the wild was considered very, very normal. In some cases, hunted meat was the only meat someone might eat for the entire winter. My husband is Cree, and he was raised by a hunter father and a trapper mother. He never got into the hunting or trapping, but he did learn to treat leathers and make things that they would sell at the Selkirk Fair each year. When we were first living together, we would sometimes get meat from members of his family as well. Once my mother-in-law sent us a hindquarter of a moose on a grey goose bus. Don't worry, it was in a cooler, it was all good. We happened to have a friend living in the same building as us who was a butcher by trade, so we even had someone to properly cut it up for us. We didn't make much money back then, so free meat was appreciated. In case it hasn't already been made clear, I support hunting for food especially when as much of the animal is made use of as possible. My first instinct when I heard something about issues with hunting and lead bullets was to be skeptical, so I made a note to look into it when I had a chance. It was at least a few weeks before I got around to this topic, but I finally did it. What is happening? Conservationists are fighting for certain hunting areas to be declared lead-free zones. Their claim is that the lead left behind from lead bullets is causing harm. This sounded super fishy to me, and I thought, bullets are lead. Is everyone who depends on hunting for meat just supposed to stop? That could be devastating to some families. Is everyone expected to switch to bows and arrows? Yeah, that was my ignorance on the topic speaking. I was wrong. I was wrong about all of it. Yes, there is a lead poisoning issue. No, not all bullets are lead. <laughs> I honestly thought that if it doesn't have lead, it's a blank or something. Yes, I was that ill-informed about bullets. While there was lots of hunting and fishing and all of that in my family, I didn't actually do it. I think that if I was a hunter, it would have all made a lot more sense from the beginning. Here's what we know. Between November 1999 and February 2020, 80% of the eagles that American Bird Conservancy had to put down were because of lead poisoning. At one point, the Cape Fear Raptor Center treated seven eagles in a single month for lead poisoning. There are two main ways that the lead is getting into the systems of scavenger birds. The less common way is when a shot deer runs and is not found by the hunters. 
Now a hunter will usually go to great lengths to track a deer so as not to leave it out there as waste. So this does not tend to happen very often. However, when it does, it dies out in the wilderness with the bullet remnants in it and it is consumed by eagles and vultures. The more common way is a result of what the hunters leave behind. When an animal is killed, the hunters will gut it, leaving the insides to be eaten by wildlife. How though? How is it so poisonous? How can the lead get into all that so fast? This still seems fishy, right? It still seems like it's going to be debunked at this point. Lead, it turns out, fragments very easily and absorbs incredibly fast. Even a bullet that passes all the way through will leave up to one third or more of itself behind in the animal. We have learned this by using radiographs on animals shot with lead bullets. They show that small fragments of lead can be up to 18 inches from the obvious path of the bullet. When gut piles in hunting areas were tested, unfortunately, nearly all contained tiny shards of lead. These tiny shards are enough. A fragment the size of a grain of rice is enough exposure to kill an eagle. While eagles are normally great for regurgitating non-food items, lead is quickly eroded by their stomach acids before they can. Once broken down, it's quickly absorbed by the bloodstream and carried to all the internal organs, the nervous system, the respiratory system, the renal system. Death tends to occur within two to three weeks of ingestion. I've been mainly talking about eagles, but there are millions of birds across the U.S. affected by lead poisoning in hunting areas every year. Issues with this have been causing problems with the reintroduction of the California condor in the western U.S. Here in Canada, it's our ravens that are commonly poisoned. I know correlation does not necessarily equal causation, but the correlation has been shown between big game hunting season and an increase in lead poisoned birds. Combining this with the studies gives a pretty clear picture of the damage being caused. Some success in treatment has occurred with some birds when they get caught early enough. Something called chelation therapy is used. It's an injected drug that binds to the toxins so that they can be removed from the body. Many do die despite treatment though. By the time a bird is found, it can be so close to death there's just no chance to treat them. Apparently there already are some lead-free hunting areas. I think in this case education is going to be very important. Hunters have to be provided with the information about the lead poisoning as well as the non-lead ammunitions that are available. More issues arise, however, when trying to buy the alternative copper bullets. They are hard to find in stores and they can be very expensive online. The only way to fix this is for hunters to begin to demand that the big box stores carry them. They want to make the sales. If enough people want an item, they will eventually bring them in, and then we can finally see some normal pricing on bullets that are better for the wildlife. So maybe if you can't make the switch at this time, start asking about lead-free bullets every time you go into your favorite outdoor shop. Get it on their radar that this is a product that is wanted, and as more lead-free zones are declared, it's also going to be necessary. They will make money off of it. If you've listened to past episodes, you probably know I get excited about archaeological discoveries. This is a segment that I sometimes wonder if I should cut out. Does it really go with the whole let's do better theme of the show? I would appreciate input on that. Let me know what you think by emailing livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. My reasoning in deciding to add this segment is that history is important to me. It's through learning of and acknowledging past mistakes that we can improve. I feel like the more we can know about what came before us, the better position we may find ourselves in to do better. 
Anyway, until I receive some feedback, I'm going to continue to share the odd archaeological story that catches my attention, because I find them fascinating. This latest find is thanks to work being done on a 275-foot wooden bridge. The beams were rotting, being replaced with metal poles, and an underwater bridge inspection was happening. This was when a medieval soldier was found at the bottom of a Lithuanian lake. The old bridge in this area at one time led to Dubingay Castle, where this 500-year-old soldier was probably from. Thanks to being covered with layers of silt and sand, he was kept in very good condition. Even wood and leather items are preserved. There are two knives with wooden handles, a sword, leather boots with spurs, and a leather belt with the buckle, all in good condition. There are lots of images and even video available of this discovery, so if it interests you, I highly recommend looking them up. Today I would like to inform you about artificial illumination and the effect it has on our environment. National Geographic called the light bulb, quote, arguably the most transformative invention humans have introduced to this planet. Of course, these days we have different kinds of artificial light, and those different types have different efficiencies, waste, and emissions. An incandescent light bulb, for example, has a very low efficiency. A great amount of heat must be generated for them to emit usable light, and apparently 95% of the electrical energy being used in these cases is just going to heat that coil. Many of these bulbs, all putting off heat in a single building, can be a drain on a cooling system. Also, they do not last very long. The filaments are fragile to vibrations and shaking, and the bulbs have to be regularly replaced. Today we have compact fluorescent bulbs, which use up to 75% less energy than traditional old-school ones. They also last 10 times longer, and only a small amount of energy is required to get light out of the gas when compared to a filament. They aren't perfect, though. There have been rising concerns about the fact that they contain mercury. While they are perfectly safe to use, it is apparently very difficult to safely discard them. Health Canada recommends items containing mercury, even the smallest amounts, be treated as hazardous waste. According to CBC, quote, The Federation of Canadian Municipalities has said it would like manufacturers of fluorescent bulbs to assume the cost and responsibility for recycling them. Unquote. That's another thing that I've been seeing more and more of these days. Companies being asked to take responsibility for the waste from their products. Another common option for lighting in 2021 are LEDs. Now these use very little electricity and also burn quite cool. Both manufacturing and use put out less emissions than other choices and there is less waste overall because of how long they last. Again though, they're not going to be perfect. Because they are so cheap, people tend to overuse them and light pollution has become a bit of an issue. A bit more on light pollution in a little bit. The other downside is that they do contain stuff like lead, arsenic, and mercury. And apparently the color matters. I'm not sure exactly why. I didn't take the time to dive into this. But according to a 2010 study published in Science and Technology, low-intensity red LEDs were found to have up to eight times the amount of lead allowed by law in some states, while white LEDs contain the least amount of lead though they still have nickel and copper. As per law, these items are not toxic, but when they build up and break down in our landfills in large quantities, it's still not a good thing. This choice really is the best one for energy consumption. If we all recycled them at proper facilities, there would be almost zero problems with LEDs. Of course, progress hasn't stopped. There are new developments for lighting in our future, and new research has shown that there may be a way to avoid mercury altogether. McGill University students have been experimenting with a new type of light bulb. This is freaking exciting. It uses electrodes made of carbon nanotubes, which would allow mercury to be replaced with water. 
Isn't that amazing? That's something worth following. It's so cool that we can continue to find new uses for carbon nanotubes. I fucking love it. Earlier I mentioned that the main issue with LEDs is light pollution. I have thought of light pollution in terms of how I see the night sky, but I never thought of it on this level before. It turns out it affects so much more. We live with so much light pollution in some places that when an earthquake caused a major power outage in LA in the 90s, residents overwhelmed emergency services with calls about a mysterious cloud up above. It was the band of the Milky Way. These people had never completely escaped light pollution enough to be able to see it. Light pollution has radically altered many nighttime environments with street lights, highway traffic lights, and the glow of a city which can send light pollution up to 40 miles away. It also messes with the natural body rhythms of both humans and other animals. For most of us creatures, melatonin is released when it's dark, and it is inhibited when it's light. Because of this, artificial light can cause sleep deprivation, fatigue, and more. It's been known to have an impact on the wake-sleep habits of animals, migration patterns, and habitat formation. There have been sad cases where migrating birds and turtles have become confused by artificial lighting, lost their way, and died. Baby sea turtles in particular are drawn away from the ocean and towards artificial lights. Supposedly millions of hatchlings die in this way in Florida every year. Insects, as we've all seen, are very commonly drawn to lights and killed because of it. And then there are animals whose life cycles depend on a cycle of dark and light. Some may actually stop reproducing if their home stops getting dark at night. It's something that affects amphibians, birds, mammals, insects, and even plants. One of my biggest lessons while making notes for this topic is that while artificial lighting does have some issues with emissions and pollutants, it's the light pollution that has the biggest overall effect on nature and wildlife. I had truly never thought of light pollution beyond my view of the night sky before. Did you all see the Spanish Doritos ad? Yes, it was a holiday ad, but I actually just recently discovered it. I figure I can't be the only one who missed out on this beauty over the holidays, so I wanted to share and make sure anyone who hears this knows it's out there. This advertisement is based on a true story, and it tells a tale of love, acceptance, and no judgment. The English translation of the title is The Best Gift. Oh, and it's available to view with English subtitles. I wouldn't normally send people to an ad, but it's such a good story, which is so beautifully done, and I totally happy cried in the end. If you're looking for a little something to lift your mood one day, just do yourself a favor and look up the Spanish Doritos ad called The Best Gift. So concludes episode 30. Thank you for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily as we move further into 2021. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro and outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me in two weeks for episode 31 of Living Through Extinction.